Okay, so I have the opportunity to interview Rolly Jacob, an old friend of mine. And as usual, I will start reading his CV. I know Rolly since more than 40 years, and we have shared a very good friendship through the world. Rolly was a professor and vice chairman of the University Orthopedic Department of Bern, Switzerland, at the Insel Hospital, where he built up the new unit and pediatric orthopedics. He then moved to Freiburg, where he worked up to his retirement as a chairman of the Canton Hospital, a major teaching hospital, which today is a university as well. Since 2007, he is a professor emeritus of the University of Bern. I met Rolly probably for the first time in Lyon in 79 at the first Congress of the International Society of the Knee, ISK. So we both came from knee surgery, side to the later formed Isacos. We then became both active in the newly formed ESCA, European Society of Knee Surgery and Troscopy, where Rowley was heading for eight years the scientific committee. In 95, he was elected program chair for the last combined Congress of ISK and IAA, International Society of Arthroscopy, in Hong Kong. And after this, he entered the presidential line of ISACOS, which he chaired in the years 2000-2001, with the Montreux Congress organized by him. With this Congress, Isakos started to fly high or better, very high. Raleigh was as well president of Swiss Orthopedics and Swiss AO. His main interest in the knee has been the preservation of the meniscus with an own inside out repair technique developed in the 80s. The PCL and postlateral instability resulting in an original brace, the PCL jack, for PCL instability and osteotomies. He also invested a lot in the treatment of fractures. He published over 200 articles and together with Hans-Jurich Stobli, the Crusade Ligament book, still a classic. In 2018, he received the Life Achievement Award of ICRS and was induced in the Hall of Fame of AOSM. He's married for 24 years to his wife, Jeanette, who works in archaeology. They are a family of three daughters and seven grandchildren. So in summary, we can consider that Rolly Jacob is an old man. I'm grateful to Isakos to receive the honor of this interview. And besides that, at my age of 79, Giancarlo, there is not much to celebrate. Surviving is all it needs. 
Now, first regarding my relation to Isakos, I will keep it short and refer to the personal remarks around history of Isakos session, how it was and how it feels today, which we gave at the history and legend session in the program of Isakos uh, 21 under the on-demand session. It can be looked up at this point. First question. Why and how did you choose to become a medical student, a doctor? I grew up in the Emmental, in the center of Switzerland. My grandparents were farmers. My father was running during the war a coal mine in the Lurchental, in the canton of Valais, and he died very young. We were four children. I was six. My youngest sister was only six months old. And this was just after war, and our mother, a remarkable woman, brought us up on her own, sending all of us to the best schools from where we went to university in Bern. While my older brother became a lawyer, our grandmother, who lived with us, wanted me to become a teacher or a pastor. I loved plants and always I was out in nature with our dog and my friend. I remember how in the fourth class of school, we had to create a herbarium. Mine seemed to have succeeded reasonably well because the teacher kept it as an example and never gave it back to me. Since during the first year of medical study, one would have botany and physics as main subjects, I decided for medicine having had good marks at school in these two subjects. I never had felt the so-called helper syndrome, as some doctors may have. Already then, I liked to work with my hands. Okay, second question. Why and how did you become an orthopedic surgeon? Well, entering medical school in Bern, Switzerland, and Vienna, which was part of the good tone at that time, common courtesy, I was especially thrilled to observe my professor of anatomy, who was able to simultaneously write with one hand on the blackboard and draw with the other one to uh, produce pictures of high quality in college chalk. Then I had some interest in dermatology, probably a residue and analogy of my curiosity to classify plants. But I also knew by heart all the syndromes which filled the medical textbooks so that internal medicine made it right to the top of the list. But since we also had to complete an internship in surgery, I decided to start with this and take it off to then concentrate on internal medicine rapidly. But things turned out differently. My first chief of surgery in a country hospital in the Emmental as well, happened to be one of the 10 surgical chiefs in the canton of Bern, who had founded five years before in 1958, under guidance of my mentor, mentor Maurice Miller, the first AO school. And indeed, I experienced fun to put fractures together with screws and plates and see patients walk out of the hospital without the cost. 
a hidden target became obvious in attempting to acquire the surgical artisanry to follow early on the path of Maurice Muller, who through experience and aptitude had reached the expressive level of an artist. In 1968, before my final exams, I applied for a training position at the orthopedic clinic of the University Hospital, the Inselspital in Bern, with Professor Maurice Müller, whom so far I had only known from his surgical tools and his lectures given as professor to his students. To enter this residency, I decided to first start the obligatory two years of general surgical residency with Professor Karl Lenkenhager, a gentleman who was known for his self-experiments. Once, uh, without alerting anybody, he lay himself in the bathtub and filled it with ice blocks to study what hypothermia would do to his body. And that's where his wife, who luckily was at home, found him unconscious with 24 degrees centigrade body temperature and had him transported by ambulance to the ICU of his hospital. Maybe stimulated by this fearless character, I left my general surgical training already after 18 months with the blessings of this kind chief because the Swiss Red Cross had called me as a chief surgeon in a hospital in Yemen, this poor Arabian country in the 70s already at war and a battlefield of neighboring countries. How come as a chief surgeon, Giancarlo? Because I happened to be the only doctor on site. We had just got married one year before and people murmured, how come he already leaves his young wife to be on his own? But in the end of my turn, she looked me up against the will of the Red Cross uh, on hidden paths, taking the risk of an adventurous trip via East Africa to Arabia. When I started with Maurice Miller in orthopedics, I found out that in young years, his wandering years, when once he had not just found a suitable job, he had left as a young surgeon in 1945 for more than a year to Ethiopia, which is separated from Yemen just by a narrow strip of the Red Sea. And there his future wife followed him to get married Maybe this coincidental, uh, coincidental analogy was one of the reasons he took me under his wings. So, who were your teachers, apart of Maurice Müller? Well, certainly Maurice Müller became my key mentor. Early during the training in 1972, he organized a stipend for me and sent me abroad for three months to Finland to learn rheumatoid surgery. But Kaukovainio from Heinola, the professor and pope of rheumatoid surgery, to whom many interested surgeons made the pilgrimage, wanted me to stay for one year and maybe to one of his residents. And that's where I also started my scientific career, between exclamation marks and nurtured my interest in experiencing, having, for instance, my proximal humerus, injected to study the phlebographic intraosseous picture 
And there I learned under guidance to operate and to acquire the skill needed. After that time, we traveled for 18 months to Toronto to the Hospital for Sick Children, where I became fellow of Professor Robert Salter and Dr. Mercer Rang for one year's duration to study children's orthopedics. With Mercer, we published the work on the mechanism of the fractures of the lateral condyle in children, which made it to the JBJS. After that, uh, I could go to Ian McNabb, who invited me to a shoulder and spine fellowship for another six months. But it was during these 18 months that I also got to know, as in a side effect to say, David McIntosh, next door in the Toronto General Hospital and at the Athletic Injury Clinic in the Hart House, where injured athletes and players were carried in the examination room to have their knees looked at. There, Dr. McIntosh, for the first time, guided my hands to test for the pivot shift. And I got to know Robert Jackson and his fellow, Dr. David Dandy from Cambridge, who was involved later in the merging of ISK and IAA. And they allowed me to peek through an arthroscope for the first time. Although these were only short but fascinating moments during this fellowship, they had a sustained effect because when returning to the clinic in Bern, we immediately started anatomy work at the morgue on this instability phenomenon and its surgical treatment, resulting in several publications because this was new at that time. In the years to come, I became leader of knee surgery and took care in parallel of the pediatric work where we developed a new triple pelvic osteotomy technique for children together with my friend, Teddy Slongo. And I pursued my interest in trauma since besides the classic orthopedic work, we dealt with all skeletal trauma and this was 50% of our work. Meanwhile, I had become vice chairman of the Department of Orthopedics and professor at the University of Bern. In the early 90s, I got twice invited for several months to a visiting professorship at the Rizzoli Institute in Bologna by Professor Mario Campanacci, the world-known skeletal tumor specialist, and we became good friends. Mercer Rang, Ian McNabb, Maurice Miller, and Mario Campanacci were my key mentors. All those gentlemen mentioned, beside their outstanding clinical and educational capacities, had also a very generous human and humble side. Thank you, Rolly. Now, uh, I have another question. How and why you become teacher and educator? Well, being at a third level trauma center and university orthopedic department and teaching center, it was clear that our tasks were not only to treat patients at the highest possible level and to perform research, but also to teach medical students and orthopedic residents. What fascinated me early was the development of practical educational tools for knee examination. And this interest led together with Peter Wirtz, a resident of ours, to the development of a Lachmann simulator 
and a second elaborate metal knee with cables to be fixed with a wrench on a table with seven ligaments that could be individually tested for. Anatomy carried to the clinic. And then we brought this artificial knee to many meetings. But we also developed a simple arthrometer, the rollimeter, which is designed for the testing of anterior posterior measurement of the lock on drawer and step off tests. After a certain time and experience with the KD-1000 and a visit of Dr. Dale Daniel from San Diego, the inventor of the KT at our department in Bern to study together PCL repairs, we set out around 1990 to develop this portable device that would be integrated in a normal Lachman examination. Okay, so really you have been an innovator. So I would like to ask you some very unpredictable question and answer. Are there any risks being too closely related to industry? How we can help industry? I had the chance to start practicing orthopedics before it became a business. Certainly the risk to be too closely related with industry exists and it is of true concern because you then tend to lose objectivity and honesty and risk to get on a dangerous track. And this may fall back on you in an undesirable way. To be honest in this context means you first must be serious and strict with indication for a specific treatment, like a certain degree and stage of OA should be visible and demonstrated on X-ray when you plan to perform a total knee or an osteotomy. Then after surgery, you must call the patients back for follow-up examinations and you must carefully document the condition of your patients who have received the new treatment you have been pushing, say, experimenting with. Do not hide serious adverts event or the lawyers will kill you. The past 20 years have shown that some loss of honesty and righteousness is present with us doctors, and that is already obvious when we set our limits for the implantation of an artificial joint too low or let us maneuver by the business-driven CEO of our clinic to do unnecessary and untimely surgery. Our patients are in such search of advice and they are often not critical enough and do not present a real and natural hindrance to your plans. And instead of receiving true help, you risk guiding them with hidden motivation. But we are very much dependent on industry, no doubt, and must help it with ideas for new techniques and progress. And we must also aid it for new industrial innovations. I could still say a word, how surgeons become innovators. What has driven us? Innovation equals invention, but the term innovation means more the, maybe the intellectual, the mental part of the process. It includes to develop something not known so far or to present something allowing to work in a simpler and equally effective way or to achieve something not yet possible with classic means. 
the mental coloring of the innovator is that he thinks and allows an idea to hatch. He has he is driven to develop something not yet possible with classic means present. He maybe also in future he is driven to do something and more likely the young innovator will go into a surgical discipline. He is continuously driven during his career to define and determine the needs of something new. And this will hopefully carry him to further shores. Personally, our continuous and lifelong target has been the endeavor to render the life in our profession easier and better applicable, but also affordable for developing countries and at the same time making the accomplished work of the surgeon more planable, measurable, quantifiable, and objectifiable, thus going beyond pure observation and rough estimates. How you did get involved in several societies? What were the driving motivation to become a member of the societies? Thank you for the question. During my academic career, I served as president, as you already said, of Swiss Orthopedics and then of ISACUS uh, with the Montreux Congress. And in 1997, we gathered cartilage surgeons, scientists, and industry representatives in Fribourg and decided to create a new society. And this was a real move to what was an early example for the later term translational medicine, where we showed the basic scientists, for instance, how close cartilage is to bone, as one of the participants at the end of the meeting expressed. I was proposed uh, founding president of this newly uh, uh, created ICRS. And in 2002, I became president of AO Switzerland, dealing with trauma, which was always very close to my heart. I'm also initiator and co-founder of a Swiss foundation, the Seto Foundation for the Training and Exchange of Young Orthopedic Surgeons and Traumatologists in the main trauma hospital in Eritrea, Africa, where Italians have a very tight history to this country. I think somebody devoted and established better a we type and not a me type, somebody beyond personal ulterior ambitious and political motives must take the lead and be willing to do the work to unite us as a group of interest and present our discipline towards outside mainly to the patients, showing what our mission statements are, what we stand for regarding our ethical rules, and how we feel responsible for the finances and the means given by our colleagues, but also by industry sponsors to us to offer the best of education and information. For instance, by establishing consensus and guidelines, by offering a rapid warning system to our members in case of complications with a certain new method. If you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Which recipes have we learned by doing this? How did things work best for me? Assigning a start and an end point to each task. 
called pacing has helped for me, trying to challenge the three most important items on the plate, learning what I can delegate and not holding it with me, creating structure for your tasks. The fact of being more productive means doing the right things, not more things. And this helps you to keep the balance. And don't lose your family. When your wife tells you she is no more interested to join you on meetings, it's time to lean back and give you a break, provided your wife is not more ambitious than yourself. How can you describe the commitment to our profession? Commitment to something is a great word. If I look it up in Google, and I did that, uh, regarding our medical profession as doctors, the most recent link appearing is from 1995, imagine. Doctors must remake the care of their patients, the first concern. That rule remains unchanged over the last 2000 years. However, the hospital environment in which this relationship should work is changing so fast with a gap that has opened between the ideal medical practice and the realities of how doctors experience their work. How can working hours of residents and fellows limited by law remain compatible with the needs of patients, but also guarantee exposure in a reasonable number of years? Something falls on the wayside. It remains a continuous challenge not to forget about our commitment because the way we live this to the outside defines about how the public, the patients see us. The picture of doctors earning more than a million per year is certainly not helping. Sometimes it is good to go back and look up Hippocrates and to the Corpus Hippocraticum which was a collection of thoughts helping doctors to work created in uh, the first 400 years before Jesus Christ. Just remind you that he warned us, doctors never should become economists. They should take no money for their work, hmm. but could feel free to accept from the patient a hen, a fish, or at the most two. Nobody doubts that the salary must be correct, but lack of trust in doctors is an overall problem. And too many high earning individuals and groups are not helpful. What position must the patient take in our activity? He must certainly stay in the center because in the end, that's what we were sworn in when becoming committing to the Hippocratic morals and rules. If we fail to do that, we shall become uncredible. But how about patients becoming more and more demanding and dictating what service they want us to provide for them and under what condition? Like a new engine in an old chassis, completely out of relation and stem cells for everything, including old age. You're touching something very delicate. I prefer not to speak about it in public. So, how do you sense the orthopedic world, and especially knee surgery and sports medicine today, related compared to the early times when we were not young, but younger than now? 
a big question. I'm just touching on one aspect to make it short. One must be careful not to glorify the past. Does the title of sports medicine knee surgeon of today mean that I'm doing mainly or exclusively arthroscopic work, trying to avoid an arthrotomy just to please the patient's cosmesis and for fear of lawyers? Or am I preferring to inject stem cells in an arthritic knee when the indication to perform an osteotomy would clearly be given? Or am I not risking losing my surgical skills when I do not apply them on a regular basis. Skills which hopefully I got taught during my training. In this context, I'm grateful for those who rediscovered over the last 10 years the need for extra articular reinforcement for chronic anterior instabilities. I'm convinced that to learn to do a good job means for a lesion, I first must see it and explore the structures needing repair and reinforcement and do it in an old fashioned open way. Later when I feel comfortable, I can do it through smaller incisions or closed. What about indication for surgery? What are your thoughts on unnecessary surgery and plethora of orthopedic surgeons? Any advice? Well, why do you give me such a tough question, Giancarlo? Uh, we hear more and more that up to one third of the surgeries performed seem to be unnecessary. And us orthopedic surgeons are said to be one of the disciplines producing the highest proportion of unnecessary surgery. I remember how about 15 years ago, Giancarlo, you told me on a meeting that in your country, and you think also in all Western European countries, one third of the cases should not be operated. Therefore, we better start to take this criticism seriously. One aspect is indications for surgery. In some countries like Germany, second opinion policy in orthopedics has been introduced years ago, and each patient is entitled to consult a second physician for treatment. So far, one doubts about the direct cost-saving effect, though. Still, I'm convinced that due to the mere existence of such a general second opinion rule, surgeons would hold back with weak indications for surgery, which would be difficult to comprehend because of fear once a complication would lead to a harm for the patient and a lawsuit, especially surgical indications of the hip, the knee and the spine are of utmost consideration. What is the other main reason behind too many surgeries? Simply the high density of orthopedic surgeons that is also the result of working hour limitations introduced in the hospital after the year 2000 when we had to engage one third more of orthopedic residents. If one would top the salaries of all players in the field today, one would still end up with a very high number of surgeries being performed, a certain percentage of those being of questionable indications. It is now 19 years ago that Mosley and co-authors have published in the New England Journal of Medicine their maybe say disturbing study providing strong evidence that arthroscopic lavage with or without debridement is not better 
than and appears to be equivalent to a placebo procedure in improving knee pain and self-reported function. In the year 2017, ESCA has published a consensus conference by which the same statement was expressed that arthroscopic meniscectomy in a way was banned to be useless, but still reaction of orthopedic surgeons is slow. And in many countries, the effect of these statements from literature and from scientific boards were not arriving with the individual surgeons. Equally, reaction of orthopedic and sports medicine societies and their specialty boards are weak or absent, so that the numbers of these surgeries have not grossly diminished. And when they have, they have led to a compensation and to an overtreatment in the form of total knees being inserted too early in younger patients instead. Therefore, this attitude is one of the potential causes that we shall directly maneuver ourselves in a situation in which we uh, fear to lose the free and independent exertion of our profession, I am afraid. So let's go to the third word. You already spoke about Eritrea and uh, Yemen, but uh, what can you say for a surgeon should be a must to go some time to work in the third work or not? Maurice Miller once stated later in his life that his leave to Ethiopia at age 27 had been decisive for his life. Many colleagues and chiefs think they are this indispensable, but it would be beneficial if young orthopedic surgeons could experience the situation outside their privileged environment and work for some months in a developing country. There they would find out that the simpler way to treat may sometimes be the better. Their trauma surgeons still use the condylar plate instead of more expensive locking plates and which by the way, have shown to be better and associated with fewer complications than with uh, the newer generation of plates. They would learn that focusing on one joint and one organ only is no way when the needs are naturally more widespread. Plus they would find back again to more economic ways of treatment and admit that plaster of Paris may not be condemned. We have created, as I said, this foundation in Eritrea. Personally, I've been there five to six times and I've rarely been as satisfied of my work as when I returned after one of these charitable activities. Uh, Rolly, I remember we were in a meeting together and I was sitting not far from you. And a common friend from Israel told you that for him, you were the orthopedic conscience in the meeting. What means that? Yeah, I think this friend of us was Michael Sudri. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he said to me later, well, when somebody gives a talk, and I feel that what he says can't be right, and I decide to get up and go to the microphone, I see Rowley is already there. That's why he said that. My advice is replay in a straightforward way and with a loud voice. 
that in your opinion, and as to your knowledge, something just said and stated is inconsistent with what has been shown or proven. Your insight, your perspectives, and your honesty, and your moral compass, as well as the fortitude to do the right thing, telling the truth, shall be appreciated by the audience. Not holding back when a speaker who is known to be too closely related to a company and who speaks like a salesman and states false success. The industry company will be grateful in the end because you saved them a lot of money. That is at least one practical aspect of an orthopedic conscience. And unfortunately, those who feel that obligation for the debating culture and to react, those are, I think, of a dying out species or at least of a specie rara, I get the impression. The professional society takes great responsibility when allowing presentations of the above mentioned qualities in the program. Okay, Rolly, that was very nice. Some advice to the new generation. Well, I think the first thing I can say to the young people, you've done the right thing to become orthopedic surgeons. A few things, you, you can only get what you give. Remember that song, love what you do and always give everything. You must like to teach to university students as you like to teach in the OR to the residents and nurses. Look for confrontation of ideas by which you progress. Be a lateral thinker now and again. Accept and dare to confront your thoughts. Get out of the lethargy of plethora. 45 years ago, Ian McNabb told me that I should even question the Brownian movement of molecules. Acquire the basic tools and techniques, for instance, before learning about cartilage repair. Become, what I already said, a comprehensive knee surgeon so you know how and when to do an osteotomy. Stick to honesty and respect your conscience. Regarding science, if you think you're not a very scientific person, you shall become a scientist through your own experience. And mind, we have the right to commit errors, but we must learn from them. Commit every mistake just once and say it when you have failed. When we don't learn from our mistakes, we inflict unnecessary stress on ourselves and on, on others and we risk losing people's confidence and trust in us. Nothing is more valuable than experience in surgery. And I advise you to make separate OR notes for complicated cases that you keep in a special roster to look them up again when you plan a similar difficult case because you will rem remember. There you may describe at which moment a specific complication happened and by what error, things you want to avoid in the usual OR note. Take every complication as a special chance to improve, but then if there is no epic crisis available, you may have forgotten. 
Mind, the best of surgical coaching is the one by a retired friend, and you offer him as well a right of existence. Be aware of cycles, a frequent phenomenon of topics in orthopedic surgery that come and disappear to then reappear 30 years again. And we have devoted some interest to this phenomenon. Last question, dear Rolly. Do you have any thoughts for the eye-aging surgeon? Second, could we be considered aging surgeon or a very old surgeon? I think now the last definition would correspond to what you say and what we are, Giancarlo, my dear friend. How can this single older orthopedic surgeon who still finds an interest to follow the trends remain being involved by giving advice and by working up his heritage, all his history, which otherwise gets forgotten? And you, Giancarlo, you have produced a very nice uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation on your osteotomies. For this, he must remain connected to younger colleagues who are keen in publishing and contributing or who just appreciate your experience and opinion when planning a case, a difficult case maybe, or assisting them even in the OR. Should older surgeons go to work themselves still? That is the question. Maybe they should not do that and withhold and give advice from a certain distance. Should we create a free of charge journal or a newsletter for the aging orthopedic surgeon, Giancarlo, or propose a section in the most actual journals devoted to contributors who have their future behind themselves. Nobody than older colleagues are better capable to write an article called a classic on the work of an eminent colleague who has passed away and once contributed with a key observation and an experiment or just a philosophy. But I also might, to conclude, add a statement of the late German philosopher Odo Marquardt. He said, age has one privilege. You can speak out what you think without paying attention at how the one who listens you will react. Finally, to the germ, germ giant, basically and right from the beginning, I sort of disliked that term, I'm sorry to say. My wife does not like to share the bed with a giant. I agree with Kansai Shino, who at the end of his interview refuses to be called a giant. He prefers to be named a student. That is obviously what he feels would be better adapting to his attitude to look back to his career as a lifelong continuing learning process and experience. I share the same humble feelings and I would feel more flattered to be called a student of Isakos. And then which older person does not like to be called a student? I remain grateful to my wife, Jeanette, to my three daughters and their families, 
but especially to my sister who donated me her cells when being in difficult times 12 years ago. I'm grateful to my patients from whom I learned all the knowledge I needed to progress to my friends and colleagues who held me back when necessary and to my students, residents and pupils critically assisting and challenging me until today and bringing me forward as well on the way to help Isakos to fly. And I thank those responsible in Isakos. And I thank you, dear Giancarlo. Thank you, Rolly. I hope that our interview was good. Anyway, good luck for the future as an aging orthopedic surgeon.